easy trap to fall into is to sort of talk about the good old days, whereas actually right now, radio and audio, we think is stronger than ever, stronger than ever in terms of audiences, in terms of revenues last year. So it's taking this moment and saying, actually, look, we're in a, we're in a bit of a golden age of audio. So let's think about building on the innovation developments to now, up until now, and focus on the future. Welcome to the Media Leader Podcast. I'm Jack Benjamin. Audio is a quickly evolving medium, and in October, commercial radio will celebrate a big birthday, its 50th anniversary. The medium has got quite a history, and joining us to talk through its past, present, and future is the CEO of Radio Center, the trade body for commercial radio, Matt Payton. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And also here is our resident audio specialist at the Media Leader, Ella Sagar. Ella writes a lot about radio, podcasts, and streaming music, and so it is wonderful to have you on. Thanks so much. And I must note, before we begin in earnest, it feels very appropriate to talk to you both about all things radio in an audio format. Uh, I think you're the first audio expert we've had on the mm-hmm. podcast so far, and so forgive me if I'm self-conscious about my performance uh, as, a, as a host here. But Matt, before we get into the nitty-gritty, can you tell us a bit about how you started in media more broadly, what's been your career path through to Radio Center, and what have you enjoyed most about working there? And, and for those of us that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about Radio Center as well? Yeah, before, happy to do that, Jack. Yes, and, and thanks again for the opportunity. Um, yeah, I might be your first audio guest, but just to say I'm not an audio presenter. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> my, my presentation skills may not be quite at that level yet. Um, but yeah, so uh, a little bit about Radio Centre. So as you say, we're the industry body for commercial radio and our, our kind of overall role is to, you know, as you'd expect, support revenue growth and uh, talk about commercial radio's role in, and as you say, what's a fast-moving and exciting space of audio, as well as shape and influence uh, regulation. And, and our sort of mission underpinning that that we talk about is to see radio differently. And that applies to our advertiser audience, our, our agency audience, but also to the political audience that we talk to as well. So so in one way, we're a little bit like a think box or a Newsworks in that we do the trade marketing, but actually we also do a bit more than that because we do the lobbying and advocacy. Uh, and we also have this kind of semi-regulatory role that we clear advertising scripts before they go on air, a bit like Clearcast does in in TV. Mm. So so we're a bit like those, but we're also a little bit different. So we do these collective functions on on behalf of radio and advertisers and, and audiences. Um, in terms of my journey, I've been at uh, Radio Centre now for more years than I care to remember, 14 uh. altogether, uh, but I've only been chief executive for one year. So I'm the I'm the guy that's been there forever, but also the new guy. Mm. Um, so I have that kind of combination. Um, and my background really is not an advertising or a radio background particularly, but in Parliament is where I started my career um, uh, in the heady days of the 90s and then worked in government for a few years uh, after that. And then sort of various membership organisations, trade bodies, trade unions, mainly in a sort of public affairs and policy and, and regulatory role. And that's how I came to to Radio Centre. But, you know, I've always had a love of radio, a love of audio, love of music. Um, and it was able to sort of bring together those different interests, if you like, of what I've been doing in my job, in my career, but also an area that I was interested in naturally anyway. You know, it's... Um, it's a bit more fun to be doing the lobbying and public affairs for radio and audio than, I don't know, the widget manufacturers or something. So it's just, it makes it a bit more, you know, brings it to life and, and gives you a bit more sense of purpose. Mm. You've reported throughout the year, UK commercial radio has hit several milestones recently. How have audiences been growing? 
I mean, it's it's really interesting. Every time Ray Jar, which is the quarterly sort of audience figures, every time they come out, commercial radios, like share of listening, it's at like average hours sort of per week spent. Um, it keeps on going up. And obviously there'll be some stations that perform better than others. And that's always quite interesting to see what's going on. But it's overtaken the BBC in terms of weekly reach and share of listening. And that um, in the last year uh, hasn't happened for more than 20 years, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt. So it's it's just kind of showing that there's a real appetite. And I think there's a narrative as well that in the pandemic, people really rediscovered a love of audio. People that maybe had never tried podcasts, started listening to podcasts or those sorts of audio habits haven't dissipated from the pandemic. And so that's something that I find really interesting because there's so many different things to unpick, like digital listening and um, internet connected listening and just in terms of like how commercial radio just seems to be every quarter going from strength to strength. Is, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, as you say, <clears throat> last couple of years, that is the, the the picture and that's a reflection of what's going on with audiences and what's going on with the choice that they have and, and how popular it is. It hasn't always been like that. <laughs> you know, I've been around and, you know, following Ray Jars for long enough to remember when the BBC was well over 50%, high 50% share. You know, now they're kind of middle 40% okay. and, and we're over 50%. So, you know, what's happened over that last 10 years to change the picture? Well, you know, I think commercial radio, the range and choice of stations that they're now able to offer on not just, you know, broadcast FM radio, but DAB radio and online. You look at the range and choice of content that's out there and that's really started to level the playing field. In, in the old world, the BBC had the vast majority of distribution because they had all the big FM frequencies. But actually with the increasing popularity of DAB, commercial radio was able to offer more services, more brand extensions. You know, Absolute Radio was the famous example being introducing the 80s and 90s stations. And then you saw that, you know, with different sort of genres of music and different content as well. So the, the choice that, that's been available has kind of exploded in the last few years. And that's really started to you know, reflect in, in the audience. So, and, and I think, you know, we're no longer in the world where the BBC has a, a, a much greater share of that distribution. DAB levels things out and online, you know, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a, not a walled garden, it's a much bigger uh, competitive set you're up against. But actually, I think what commercial radio is trying to do is leverage that strength and popularity into, the, into this new world. And, and as you say, that's what you're seeing, both in terms of the choice that's available, the listening. And, and I think the, the, what you said about the pandemic is really interesting as well, because we followed audience habits very closely during that time. And as you say, what's been interesting is the way in which that's sustained you know people have got used to spending time at home you know what can you do whilst doing other things mm -hmm. and consume media to help your mood and you know increase your general kind of sense of well-being well you have the radio on mm -hmm. and and that's happened in in a big way yeah and the i think radio center did the the need states and on uh like eight is it eight or seven different yes please states. don't ask me to name them but yeah 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 <laughs> um one of the the newest ones was keeping some keeping company um, and the other thing, I suppose it, for a commercial radio from my, like from writing about it, it's not just been about the audiences, although what's interesting is there's been more of a trend towards like a brunch kind of time listening. So it's not like a earlier morning peak, it's like more towards 10 or 11, mm. um, that over time that's kind of when people start or most people start tuning in. But there's also this uh, lots of talent, um, presented talent moving over to commercial. So whether that's, you know, 
to Bauer to Global. And there's all of these BBC presenters who ha- have decided to make that, like, that, that journey over. So that's been a big trend as well. Yeah, and I think, look, you know, before it would have been very difficult for commercial radio to say to Ken Bruce, who was the presenter on the biggest show, Mm. you know, biggest radio show in Europe, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, but we didn't have, or commercial radio didn't have the properties to offer to someone like that to say, you'll have a genuinely national show that you'll be able to reach, you know, huge audiences with. But, you know, what's the developments in the in the market and the developments in uh, the brands that are now available means that Bauer can have that conversation meaningfully and, you know, bring over that show and, you know, probably give him a bit more freedom that perhaps he wasn't getting on, on the BBC. And I think, I mean, particularly with news presenters, you hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. I think you look at the news agents uh, podcast, yeah. you know, the presenters, Emily Maitlis, John Sopel, Lewis Goodall, I think probably, and they've expressed it themselves, all felt a little bit constrained by the constant pressure they were under um, to, you know, not just find balance, which they do anyway, but, but do that in a very BBC way, mm-hmm. along with, you know, mm-hmm. the editorial guidelines and the, and the pressure you get, the political pressure from, from all sides. Um, and I think, you know, that and the freedom it gives them to go off and do other things. Yeah, and I mean, they, I mean, Emily Maitlis, John Sopel, they, they've kind of started out podcasting, doing Americast for the BBC, and now that they can do the News Agents US as well. So it's obviously a sign, okay, you've done the News Agents the, in the UK, and, and okay, we're going to do a US podcast as well. It must, it's, it's a really good sign. Mm. And yeah, I lo- also, I love the podcast, so I'm quite biased. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you bring up podcasts because Radio Centre recently expanded its remit to include podcasts, uh, meaning podcasts by any commercial radio operator that, that they're producing and publishing on streaming. I'm, I'm curious, Matt, what are your thoughts on, first of all, the expanded remit? How's it been going? It's only been a few weeks now, but I'm, I'm curious. Well, it's only been a few weeks since you announced it officially, but you've been working on this for quite some time before. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think really, you know, in terms of what has changed and why, I mean, Radio Centre's remit was traditionally focused, as our industry was focused, on broadcast radio stations uh, from our member companies. But as we've been saying, you know, the world has changed. You know, for commercial radio, I think around 29% of their of their listening time now is, is on connected devices already. You know, that's actually bigger than FM now, mm. which is unthinkable, mm-hmm. you know, a few years ago. So that's just for linear radio. Before you start thinking about, you know, the investments they're making in podcasts, the, the investments they're making in, in on-demand streaming and their own uh, platforms. Now, Radio is still the biggest part of commercial audio, as we know. I think the Rajar Midas figures, uh, I think they estimate about 84% of commercial audio, so audio where you can actually advertise, is live radio. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to invest in an audio advertising strategy, you need to have radio at its heart. But you've got to, you know, the developments that we've all been talking about, the exciting sort of podcasts and and sort of music streaming which fulfill these different need states which some of our researchers looked into you know couldn't really be ignored so as the industry body we're we're having to reflect that shift and i I mean we've been doing it as you say it's been a couple of weeks since we announced it but we've been doing it incrementally over the last few years Um, but i think what i felt was it's about time we made a statement about that um, to clarify what our role is so we agreed with our members that Radio Centre would represent and promote all forms of audio provided by commercial radio companies. Now, in practice, what does that mean? Uh, I mean, we've got to reflect that across all the areas that we work. So, you know, the area that I specialised in was the sort of policy and regulatory affairs. And of course, you know, 
radio's place in the digital future, the connected future, has been a big part of what we've been talking about the last few years. We can talk about, you know, the media bill um, and -hmm. the legislation that's designed to secure radio's future on smart speakers and connected devices. I mentioned the clearance work that we do. Again, they were designed originally to pre-clear advertising scripts for broadcast radio. Last couple of years, they've been giving advice also on advertising scripts for digital audio, which is against complicated, but it's against a different advertising code, but they're well-placed to provide that advice as well. Um, and then also, obviously, you know, advertising research, uh, marketing focus, and, you know, the need states piece we were just talking about from a report called Generation Audio, which looks at what people go to audio for and different types of audio, whether that's podcasts, radio or streaming. And you might go to a podcast to broaden your horizons, which is one of the ones I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and actually podcasts perform really well for that need state. But actually radio across most of those is, is the core element. But just talking about radio in the world that's developed and the listening habits that develops and the advertiser habits that have developed just felt too narrow. Mm. So I think we've, we've wanted to broaden that out, really. And I think hopefully, you know, it gives clarity over our role. It gives a more holistic view of, of audio. There'll be more to come, I think, is all I can say at the moment in terms of, you know, other things that we want to do in terms of our research, in terms of the tools that we'll offer for advertisers um, to ensure that they're achieving the best advertising outcomes they can using audio as a whole. And you got a nice little fancy rebrand as yes, well. Yes, we did. But you know, industry body has new logo is not that <laughs> exciting. So so I think what we wanted to do is package this all up together yeah. mm-hmm. because, you know, the point of the rebrand, the point of the new look is to say, look, we as an organisation are modernising, developing, looking to the future. And, you know, I think we also wanted to do that at a point of the 50th anniversary uh, since the first commercial radios mm-hmm. uh, stations came on air because while we're very respectful of the heritage and the and, and what went before, you know, I think the trap, the easy trap to fall into is to sort of talk about the good old days, whereas actually right now, radio and audio, we think is stronger than ever, stronger than ever in terms of audiences, in terms of revenues last year. So it's taking this moment and saying, actually, look, we're in a, we're in a bit of a golden age of audio. So let's think about building on the innovation developments to now, up until now, and focus on the future. So that's how we've kind of tried to package it all up together. Mm. You've brought up a few things that I will want to make sure I ask you about, including the the digital media bill. But I I do want to stick on this sort of newer audio podcasting uh, uh, area. Um, I'm aware it's a challenging area. I mean, we have our own podcast here. You know, we've only sort of recently starting regularly hosting um, Ella, are there current standards, and you, you talked to a lot of podcast uh, professionals, are there current standards in terms of measurement or in terms of advertising best practice that you're aware of that people should know about? I think it's something that came up at the, our Future of Audio conference this year, that the need for standardization, whether it's measurement or any of those sorts of uh, attribution in terms of buying and the ease of all of those things Um I think also in terms of podcast advertising and what the kind of standard is, as you mentioned, Matt, like a digital audio ad is slightly different to a radio ad, which will be slightly different to a podcast ad. So and you've got to treat them slightly separately because um, someone listening to a radio ad in their car is going to be different to someone listening on headphones to a podcast. And the context is different. The environment's different. The way that person listens is different when they listen is different. 
So mm. that I, I think kind of obviously there are certain like, you know, you've got to make sure that everything in the ad is accurate and all of those sorts of things. But aside from that, it can you can be quite creative with it. And there that's maybe the instead of seeing it as a kind of, oh, it needs to be standardized. I mean it there are it would be helpful if there was a common language in terms of measurement. What does a podcast download mean? What's a listen through rate? What's what does engagement look like? Mm. Um but it's it's kind of a a grey area, but it is a very exciting area. It's growing a lot. So I think that it's only going to become a bit like uh, more sort of robust in terms of like what what can you do on this platform and how it's kind of uh, discussed and how it's put on plans. Mm. Matt, I mean, well, to answer some of the questions that, that Ella just posed, I mean, what, in terms of measurement, what standards, maybe there may not be many at the moment, but what should there be in order for advertisers to feel I think, more comfortable? I think Ella makes some good points, and, and, and just to pick up on, on a few of them, I, I think, as you say, barriers to entry for making podcasts uh, have never been lower, and the ability to, to make high-quality content uh, has never been greater. So I think that's really exciting in terms of the choice that's out there in terms of the, the different voices you can hear on, on podcasts uh, now. I think the flip side to that 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 we think people are still working through is okay. The barriers to entry for content are, are low. The barriers to commercial viability and you know uh, the commercial model, I think, are still you know I think still unclear. And I think it, it's it's difficult. I mean, we you know you look at you know some of the biggest players in audio have made big investments and gambles. You look at Spotify's investments into the podcast space. Um, which they now seem to be retrenching from uh, mm-hmm. a, a little bit. So I think, you know, it is a challenge. And at the moment, it seems to be a hits business. And, and that may remain the case. You know, there's a there's probably, you know, when you consider the thousands of podcasts that are uploaded every week, a very small proportion of those are actually, you know, probably making money is, mm-hmm. is the truth. You know, I don't know the data uh, off the top of my head, but I just, that's that's the sort of, you know, what, what you hear. And I, that, that kind of rings true. So, look, would would um, better standards, more consistent standards, and measurement help? Then, then undoubtedly, um, I guess you know, going back to the future of audio event um, earlier this year, I know that, that measurement was was measurement was voted as a as a top issue. Um, and who wouldn't want more data? You know, we're we're surrounded in a world where where data is the fuel that drives advertising, and I think we've become used to that. And I guess sometimes, though, we're not always clear on what we mean by measurement. You know, mm-hmm. data. Are we talking about data on individual campaigns? Are we talking about data around audiences? Are we talking about comparability? And I think sometimes we just got to be careful not to confuse measurement with impact mm. as well. So I think there's, it, there's, you know, the word measurement is kind of broad and mm. covers a lot of different kind of things so i think there's a there's a more nuanced and and detailed level that sits underneath that and i think you know so i understand the desire mm-hmm. and, and the principle um and i think it's important to listen to what our customers want and what's important to them but there's things happening already in this space uh, as well so you look at obviously radar is the gold standard yeah um in terms of overall radio listening radar my does does provide comparability across different platforms but not on an individual mm-hmm. um program basis you know you've got the touch points sort of uh data from from ipa so you've got all of those things and then even on 
you know, radio, you've got the you've got the jet system as well, obviously, in terms of reporting where ads have run, what their impacts are. So there's a lot out there and I think I think it will start to evolve and I think it, it probably needs to, but it's kind of also recognizing what's available now and how that's evolving. Mm-hmm. Mm. What would you say is coming up most in conversations with you know, clients or the people that you're talking to in the industry, Matt? Is it this sort of measurement bit? Is that still you know, from Future of Audio? That was, that was a while ago. Now it was quite a few months ago. Um, has that conversation continued to sort of dominate or are there other things that have been popping up? Yeah, look, that's absolutely one of the conversations that, that continues to be really important. And as I say, is uh, is reflected, you know, I'm on various other boards and involved in various other discussions as well. So I, I sit on the RAJAR board, you know, there's conversations going on all the time, not in just in terms of the core survey, but how that, that evolves in that space. I mean, in terms of, you know, what our members are talking to us about and what other stakeholders are talking about, surprise, surprise, in common with every other sector, we're working out what AI means for us. Um, uh, I think we're still working that out, really, and what that capability really means. You know, is it a tool to save time on news gathering or or some of the other sort of functions, administrative functions? Is it a, a positive to use machine learning to fill in some of our gaps in terms of the data we have? So that there's opportunities there, you know, uh, or are we all going to be replaced? You know, that, that, that's the flip side, you know, that we, yeah, that we don't really know. it's one extreme or the other, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it seems to be a little bit polarising at the moment. And yeah. I think, you know, will we'll we'll all our presenters be AI presenters yeah. in, at some point in um, the future? And, and, and will there be any good? My cousin's an actor and she does voice acting work. So she's, uh, you know, she'll read audiobooks and things like that. And she's been playing around with the voice AI and you put in a sample. And it's quite scary but it's kind of it's still not quite human sounding especially if it's an an audiobook or something that needs a bit more of that intonation i mean as journalists we we're always talking about ai <laughs> yeah. um uh slightly from a place of fear i think but also fascination uh well, but yeah. yeah i don't know if i'll be hosting this in 5 years we'll have uh, <laughs> robojack uh, <laughs> i mean well i mean so basically a lot of uncertainty yeah but that. i think look that- I'm an optimist, and I think the optimistic take is that radio provides entertainment, but the thing about it that that distinguishes it from music streaming services is the human connection, the curation, and that remains a really important part of the offer, and I think that will remain the case. But look, I hear what Ella's saying. I mean, you look at the... Um, you know, the, the Screen Actors Guild dispute mm. in the US, you look at, you know, performers or, or, or actors, others here, looking at you know, the way in which the studios are proposing to use that technology, you know, it's not a big leap to think of that being used mm. in other areas. So so it's a real issue and, and something that, that, as you say, it's a, it's a common issue that we're all talking about. In um, a radio context, I could probably see it, say if you wanted, or radio or a podcast context, if you someone did a, a read of an ad and then you, you wanted to use AI to change the location or postcode of and make and so you wouldn't have to record however many versions um, with the actor. You would do one or two, and then you could just do let AI sort of generate the rest, and then that ad is then rele- more sort of targeted and sort of relevant to in those specific areas. I could see that being a benefit, but it's just how far you take it. Yeah, yeah, and that that sort of dynamic audio, which is what you're talking about, is that and the different variations on on ads as you know, the technology's gone in that direction in recent years, in any event, as you say. Um, I mean that's part of the reason we are 
a little bit concerned about you know increasing reliability you know, reliance on digital platforms and gatekeepers for the distribution of radio mm. um, uh, particularly on smart speakers which has come from nowhere mm-hmm. uh, in the last sort of five or six years to be a you know significant form of, yeah, of distribution I think. yeah I think about 14 15 percent now more obviously for some stations much higher but overall online listening now as I said is I think it's about quarter for every for overall for the radio industry commercial radio is a bit a little bit higher than that so, you know, increasing reliance on those platforms who have access to this technology and developing their own proprietary technology in the space, you know, that's something that, you know, if we believe that trusted, high-quality content from the UK is important to preserve, um, you know, that's why we've been talking to government about trying to secure that for the future. Mm. Well, that's a, it's a great opportunity to ask you a little bit more. I mean, I guess, first of all, tell us about the, the upcoming media bill um, for those that haven't been keeping up with it, I, I imagine there's there's few people that have kept up with it better than you. So, I guess top line summary: what's what's the big important part as as it relates to radio? Yeah. So the thing we are trying to address is 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 a variation of what I was just talking about. Really, which is as we become more reliant on online platforms to distribute radio, we're in a world where they have great power over uh, the distribution and how the radio how those that content is heard how the commercial messages are included and so on. So look, I don't want to overplay it because actually there's some great opportunities from being on smart speakers and being available online, you know, in terms of the content, the interactivity that 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 opens up. But there is a significant risk if, you know, in the world where the platforms, the significant platforms have have market power over our distribution Um, and that they could then start to push listeners to their own radio-like services away from UK radio content, they could start to limit free access to, to radio, or they could insert their own ads, you know, either before, during, or after a, a stream. And the, the government and, and industry have been working on this for a number of years now, from it was a digital radio and audio review, which was a few years ago. Um, and the recommendations of that was to say, look, actually, we believe that unfettered access to high quality, trusted UK radio content is important. It needs to be viable. And so uh, as part of that, we were sort of talking to the government and they've been talking to the industry about what does that look like in terms of legislation and, and what could they put in place? So what the media bill does is put certain obligations on significant radio voice assistant platforms. Now, they don't name them, but really they're talking about Alexa, they're talking about Google's uh, Mm. voice uh, assistant devices. And they're they're sort of obligations, frankly, that they're doing already at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, make radio available, you know, provide the service when a listener asks for it. Um, No unauthorised advertising over this type of content um, and the broadcaster has the right to determine how their content is served and how it's distributed on those platforms. Now, as I say, by and large, they're doing that already. So this is really a kind of safeguard against behaviours that would, might you know, cause some difficulty for, for, for radio and for, for audiences into the future. So... Um, that's as high level as I can give it. <laughs> I, can I give think you... it's, it's a very good summary, to mm. be honest, of like that. It's a very, it's like a chunky bill. Mm. It's got lots of different elements to it. It kind of makes me think of the, um, well, how publishers in Australia and Canada have been trying to kind of negotiate and, and via legislation with Meta about, well, okay, and Google of like, you, carry, you use our content, 
Mm. Um, but we don't have control necessarily of what ads appear against it or like all of these things. And so it's not exactly the same, but it's kind of, you know, the kind of tech and and publishers, whether that's audio or print or they're trying to, it's that relationship and then where the consumer fits in, what the consumer has a right to access this content and where do advertisers fit in and all of their sort of kind of rights being respected, I guess. I think it's a good parallel. I think obviously the economic element's slightly different yeah. because what you're talking about with the Australian model and in Canada, obviously there's a dispute at the moment and actually as part of the Digital Markets and Competition Bill, which is a separate bit of legislation, um, they're introducing, they're looking at introducing a similar framework mm-hmm. here. So that, but as you say, I think with press um, and indeed with other media, perhaps they're further down the road mm-hmm. of being much more reliant on Google and Meta and, uh, and others. Whereas, you know, for us, you know, we were online distribution of radio has only really surged over the last four years or so. It's kind of doubled in the last four years. Before we were about nine, ten percent generally for a long time, mm-hmm. um, but now it's kind of going at a much faster rate, faster than was predicted. And so I think now's the time for action. Because to be honest, we don't want to be playing catch-up. Yeah. Mm. You know, that's the risk, is, is you sort of wait and see, which was yeah. some of the pushback that was, as you know, as part of this. But if you wait and see, it'll be too late. Yeah, you know, we'll start to lose yeah. radio stations. We'll start to see, you know, services diminishing mm. uh, for audiences and, and for advertisers. You know, I mean, for advertisers, you know, restricting access to radio is not a good thing. You know, I think you know it causes it, it'll have a negative impact on reach and effectiveness of their ads. It undermines the long-term strength and, and viability as, as a, of a trusted platform. You know, and advertisers understandably want to know where their ads are running and uh, and don't want them removed without warning. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it does have, you know, it obviously has an impact for listeners in terms of being able to access their favourite services. But I think it has an impact for advertisers as well. So, yeah, not waiting until there's like a tipping point. And because it's trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Exactly. um, If kind of, so that that this is a sort of a future-proofing legislation. And I think, look, I think, as I say, I'm I'm kind of naturally optimistic. And if we get this right, we'll grow audiences on connected devices, which is good for radio, good for audiences. And it's actually good for the platforms in terms of shifting more units and having more dwell time on those devices is is a good thing as well. And I think, you know, it develops potentially more sophisticated and exciting advertising solutions as well in terms of, you know, utilising that return path, that connectivity that you've got with audiences. You know, I know there's already, you know, actionable ads that uh, are being developed and being used for, for different brands and uh, in for different uh, media owners. And mm. I think that's probably just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and are you getting it right or are they getting it right so far? I mean, what have been your takeaways from the, the draft bills? So, so by and large, yes. Um, we made a couple of observations because the, the type of radio service that's protected, if you like, is the linear radio service. Mm. So along with the BBC and, and community radio and others, we've kind of made the point, well, look, that's a, that's the core, that's really, impo- really important that you cover that. But actually the growing bit will increasingly be, you know, on-demand listening or uh, online radio stations that we offer as well. So really you should extend the scope to that for, for Ofcom licensed services. So there was that, uh, and there's a few other elements about, you know, whether voice should be the only way in which radio is supported and protected. I think I think it's 
the most important because it's growing fastest. But actually, what about radio in car that's not brought around by voice control? So actually, radio's place in the car is increasingly challenged because you know what you're getting is connected cars uh, with much more complicated in-car infotainment systems. Where's the radio button again? Yeah, Can't I mean, quite I've been see in, it. in some like really, like I say, really modern. I mean, like modern, more modern cars than my Toyota Igo, let's say. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. it is Mine basically too. a computer. It's yeah. like a full-on sort of and yeah, infotainment, but it's mm. like so alien to to the where it has been in the past yeah i mean my car's old enough still to be a uh, six radio station presets oh, and me that's too. all i can yes. see you know. <laughs> but but actually that world with new cars is starting to go mm-hmm. um and actually you know how do we secure radio's prominence i mean quarter of radio listening is done in cars and um for younger audiences in particular it's really important mm-hmm. so uh you know we through various means, we have dialogue with uh, the automotive sector about the importance of radio. But um, I think, you know, there's a case for secu- doing more to secure radio's position. So, Jack, just to, in answer to your question, I think overall we're really pleased with what the government set out in the draft bill. We've just finished, or sorry, last week, the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee published their interim report. So doing what they called... Uh, pre-legislative scrutiny in the jargon uh, of the bill so this is a before the bill's tabled before parliament mps get to have a look at it kick the tires see if it's you know fit for purpose um and actually you know we were really pleased that they came down very strongly in support of the radio measures uh in the bill um so we now are waiting to see what will be in the government's program in the autumn so the the King's Speech is where the government sets out its legislative programme uh, for the year ahead. So the date of that, I think it's the 7th of November. So that's mm. the date we're working to now with government to sort of try and see if the bill itself will make the cut, really. Mm. Um, and I don't. there's no reason why it shouldn't, but you never know. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, heard, I saw some speculation this morning about, you know, perhaps the government will go for a spring election rather than an I autumn as well. election. Mm. And that, you know, I think, funnily enough, that's probably our biggest risk is just being timed out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Would you imagine the bills received differently if, it, let's say, a different government sure. does get elected? Would anything change, do you yeah. think? I mean, uh, the only thing, the main thing that was changed is it probably wouldn't be the first thing that an incoming, let's say, Labour government would, would want to uh, focus on. Mm. Um, now, that's not to say they're not supportive of it. You know, we've spoken quite a, at length to their front bench teams about it, their DCMS team. The select committee is a cross-party committee, um, including Labour and SNP members. So again, you know, unanimously supporting. So I don't think there's any reason why, you know, a new government wouldn't support it. It's just it would delay the process. Sure. Um, a lot going I'm, on right now. Yeah. And if you're an incoming government, you know, media legislation probably wouldn't be the first thing you would want to do but if you could ma- wave a magic wand what your hope for november would be yeah that it's in the government's program that the bill is tabled before parliament that it's relatively uncontentious politically if you compare it to some of the other things going through migration bill or whatever mm-hmm. it is that actually it gets a fair wind and that by you know this time next year on the statute book you've got a range of powers that supports radio's position on connected devices well, I'd like to transition us into a quick hits question uh, section. 
Ella recently asked a number of people in the industry about their favorite podcasts. I even got to give an answer on that, which is which was very fun for me. Um, Matt, I want to throw the question to you. What is your favorite podcast of all time, as well as a new podcast that you've discovered recently and, and gotten hooked on? Of all time. Mm, yeah. yeah. Crap, that's so it's a kind of two-part Okay, event. all right. I mean, aside from obviously the Media Leader podcast, <laughs> of course, which just goes without saying, right? I would like to, the record to show that I did not tell Matt to say that. <laughs> no, right. No, you just wrote it down. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Uh, look, I think these, look, in terms of current habits, um, the news agents is my kind of go-to everyday catch-up. I mean, you know, I'm a bit of a political junkie anyway, so I want to know what's going on in that world. Um, the fact they're able to turn those podcasts around daily uh, in the way that they do with such high quality content, guests, opinion, everything they're able to do, I think is amazing. Mm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's my kind of daily hit uh, interspersed with various sort of comedy podcasts and sports podcasts. Oh, okay, I see. Quite um, like, quite like uh, Wolf and Owl with uh, Ramesh Ranganathan and oh, Tom Davis. Very nice. Good fun. Yeah. Good fun. Um, and, you know, various football podcasts. I'm a long fun, uh, suffering support of Aston Villa. It won't mean anything to you, Jack, but, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I like to, I like well, to catch up on, on that. Yeah. I'm a Chicago sports fan, and yeah. historically we've, we haven't performed very, very well. Um, Ellie, I, I know that you actually didn't get to answer that question yourself, so here's your opportunity <laughs> to talk about your favourite podcast. Oh, I I mean, favourite of all time, you know, it's like choosing a favourite child. I, um, I, I think the podcast that was, I'm going to pick... Pe- Podcast that's my favourite of all time just because it's the thing that got me into podcasting and it's The Guilty Feminist and uh, hosted by Deborah Francis White and I initially discovered it because I went to see it live at the Edinburgh Fringe as a, I had a random slot free and they they just happened to be like, hey, do you want to come and see this this show and with like women and comedians? And I'm just like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and then, uh, so that's that's one. It is, it's now become hugely popular they do tours around around australia and new zealand and america and the uk and so uh which makes me happy that they've gone from like a little small tiny like dungeon in the edinburgh fringe to to millions and millions of uh, listeners and then um in terms of recent discoveries one called witches on bbc sounds a series about kind of what it says on the tin it's about the history of of witches and and I'm going to credit Georgie Holt with that recommendation. It was uh, from Acast, uh, now telling media. So thank you, Georgie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another quick podcast question. Um, I recently interviewed Mail Metro Media's Chief Revenue Officer, Dom Williams, and he talked a lot about um, how the publisher wants to be known for podcasts going forward. Um, they've made some hiring in this area. Uh, Guy Edmonds, Jamie East as well, just in the past few weeks. I'm curious from a more publishing standpoint, Matt, how are you looking at publishers getting into podcasting more? Have we reached peak podcast yet? It seems like a really saturated market. I mean, you know, we've got our own as well. Is there room for more? I mean, experience tells us there's always room for more, isn't it? You know, I think that the, the interesting thing about publishers getting involved, which I think is a good thing overall, because it's more choice, it's more investment, more quality, um, you know, but it's not new. You know, one of the first regular podcasts I used to listen to probably more than 10 years ago, showing my age, was probably the Guardian's media podcast, you know, which kind of set the standard in terms of, you know, covering those issues weekly, got me 
sort of understanding the sort of nuance of some of those media policy issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, The Guardian have been doing this for years, you know, I guess, you know, News UK through The Times and their other, various other titles have been doing this for a long time. And, you know, The Economist, is, again, is another one in terms of, you know, very high quality, high production standards. Um, so, look, I think the more the merrier in terms of investment in the medium. I guess it goes back to what we were saying earlier, though, in terms of what is the commercial model for this? And, you know, is it if it's a hits business, where does that take you in terms of uh, the content? And I think Ella's point about the podcast she was just talking about is interesting because actually, increasingly, it's not just a advertising model similar to broadcast. It's an events model. Mm-hmm. It's a merchandising or model. subscription. It's a subscription it's like, model. Or get this yeah. content early um, and mm. be the first to get tickets for our events. It's, it's so I think of- that's really interesting, seeing how that's developing, because I think then you, you start to maybe get to greater sustainability because you're, you've got a mixed model of, of you know, event subscriptions and, uh, and advertising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over the weekend, and I imagine that this podcast will come out a little bit later, but Barbenheimer is all over the news. I imagine the whole first week is going to be very good in terms of box office. Um, I'm curious, uh, first of all, have both of you seen any of these films? I haven't seen either yet. Yes, I'm, I've seen Barbie and I'm seeing Oppenheimer in a few days. Right. So I'm, I'm part of the Barbenheimer uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> ill-informed on this topic. Other than my <laughs> wife and three daughters all went to see Barbie yesterday and came home bouncing oh, after watching amazing. it. So. They really liked it. Yeah, they loved it. They loved it. I'm curious more from a commercial standpoint. I mean, the marketing around these films has been amazing, really, has driven, I'm sure, a, a good amount of this box office revenue. Um, Matt, I'm curious, what did you make of, of this marketing campaign? Can it be done again can it be done again in other mediums like like audio for instance it's interesting isn't it i mean i I can't remember anything quite like the barbie campaign the sort of blanket coverage that they've been able to get but also the in a way the simplicity of just make something pink Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. says barbie it says my movie so it's kind of you know i think there is a sort of genius to that um yeah can you replicate that i don't know i mean possibly but yeah, I think it's an it's been an interesting exercise in how the marketing has absolutely driven the demand mm-hmm. uh, for that. And and I think you know who would have predicted that uh, you know the Barbie movie and the biopic of Oppenheimer would have been <laughs> twinned in this way. Right. If you just said that as your you know predictions for twenty twenty three, it wouldn't have been high up the list, would it? This is a decision in a bo- in some boardroom or other, being like, right, oh. Oh, so our movie's going to come out at the same time as Christopher Nolan's really serious three-hour-long <laughs> biopic about nuclear war. Oh, we we should pull that. That's not going to work. And then someone said, oh, this is a great idea. This is going to work to our advantage. And I was like, how on earth is this going to work to your advantage? And it, it's just mad. And I just, mm. I, I kind of, I think obviously social media and all of that sort of drove quite a lot of it. But I think there's a lot to be said for Barbie people's memories of Barbie. And so it's kind of doesn't have to do that much hard work. You could just use a colour and people know what what it is. Um, but I don't know. I was talking to some friends when I came out of the Barbie movie. Like I was thinking, do, do kids play with Barbies anymore? I don't know because there's so much choice. Well, it's now like, Mattel's hoping they will now. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I it's interesting. So my, like my 16-year-old, uh, to my amazement, wanted to go because her recollection was when, you know, 10 years ago, she was watching these 
badly animated Barbie things, and it was like a retro thing for her and her friends. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was, it seemed to span quite a broad age group. Is, are your daughters going to go out and buy Barbie dolls now, though? <laughs> not sure about that. No, not sure about that. No. That's a tougher sell. Yeah, right. yeah. Last question. Very simple question. Matt, do you have an all-time favorite audio ad? Oh, God, that's a hard one. So Radio Centre does have an incredible archive of brilliant audio ads. And the one that sticks with me, having not really thought about it, was a brilliant one with um, Ricky Gervais and uh, Carl Pilkington, I think was for prostate cancer. Uh Um, And it was, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was probably skirting a little bit close to the edge in terms as of Ricky uh, does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As in terms of advertising compliance and getting <laughs> getting through our clearance team. But um but you know, a serious message mm. done in a funny way, you know, and that's that's the power of, of radio advertising. Mm. And I think, you know, if you've got consistent branding, consistent messaging, you've got a bit of humour, you know, I think it can really cut through and yeah that's one that just stuck in my head for some reason i think there's yeah. a yeah kind of documented decline in funny ads i think humor needs to be used more i think it's it's definitely mm. something that makes things stick in your mind more yeah i mean there's some uh, i can't again probably can't say too much at the moment but we are looking at um some of the sort of most effective creative elements within radio ads. I mean, we do a bit of that with a thing called Radio Gauge at the moment, which is a kind of post-campaign analysis tool which looks at the creative performance of ads and what works and what's effective and how audiences react to them. Um, So we're looking at new ways of using some of that data and, and assessing that because I think the more we can provide tools or the more we can provide information, so you know, advertisers and clients can make informed decisions to get the best out of their radio ad. Mm. So be funny is one is one potential <laughs> way. Make your make your life really difficult at Radio Centre by, oh, I don't know if we, <laughs> we can, can get, say this. We can say this, but it is funny. Yeah. Um, well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Ella, you as well. That's all the time we have, but it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.